welcome to the Bible Feed podcast, a place for conversations about the Bible and faith in the modern world, where ordinary people come together to help each other understand the Bible better. Let's get started. Clearly, we're going to be thinking about the question, did Jesus pre-exist? And if he did, or if he didn't, does it actually matter? Does it change things for, for people who try to follow Jesus, people who would call themselves Christians? Well, he was a teacher, Jesus of Nazareth, and by all accounts, one who was worth going and listening to. People followed him, um, and even though he lived the first sort of three decades of his life in almost obscurity, he attracted a remarkable following uh, in a few years. And today his legacy is felt in all kinds of different places, in religion, in cultural practices, in music and in art. Even our calendars are sort of built uh, around an estimate of his birthday. And so tonight we're interested in thinking about his birth and asking a question about it. And that's a question that Christians and other people have been asking and wrestling with and debating and discussing and fighting about um, for, uh, for centuries. Did Jesus pre-exist? Was he in some sense a being before being born into a quiet small town in Israel about 2,000 years ago? And if that question is uh, answered with a yes or with a no, does that mean that anything is going to change for Christians, for non-Christians, for interested onlookers? So I hope you're going to enjoy what uh, we're going to be discussing. So with that, let me introduce to you uh, the people that we have with us. Um, uh, Sam, I'll go to you first. Uh, lovely to have you uh, here with us. I'm in North London. Uh, whereabouts are you? Let's start with that. Thanks, Josh. Uh, I'm up in Nottingham. Um, I'm really happy and uh, delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me onto the onto the show. Uh, but um, no, I'm really happy to be here. Happy to share what I've been looking at uh, around Jesus and whether he pre-existed or not. Excellent. It's it's lovely to have you with us, uh, and it's great to look at this question with you tonight. To help us to do that, uh, we have John with us. Uh, John, over to you. Hello. How are you? Good being from. Yeah, um, I'm okay. I sound terrible because I've got a massive sore throat and a cold, but uh, yeah, looking forward to discussion. You sound as though you were going to sing tonight, which I'm not going to put you on the spot to do. It'd be a nice sort of bluesy, raspy voice. <laughs> it would certainly be that, yeah. It sounds like I've smoked for about 40 years. But... <laughs> there we are. It should be an interesting one tonight, though. It's uh, it's one of those topics, I think, that perhaps if you're listening who, and you're someone who's never really engaged with Christianity before, this might seem a bit kind of esoteric and weird, but I hope as we go through tonight, it'll become apparent why it's kind of relevant. Um, yeah. So let's, let's see where the discussion goes. I think that's a good point. So, uh, Sam, uh, looking to you now, do you want to sort of set up uh, what it is and how we're going to approach this question tonight, sort of lay a bit of a framework for us to yeah. uh, to get our heads around? Yeah, absolutely. So, right. you know, as John just mentioned, and yourself, we're, we're here to essentially ask the question whether Jesus, uh, Jesus of Nazareth pre-existed uh, before he was born. And you know, as John just touched on, that's quite a strange question. Do you know what I mean? How could something exist before it was born? Um, but actually, there is uh, a long tradition, a long Christian tradition, sort of nearly, I suppose, 1,000 700 years old tradition sort of has interpreted Jesus as an eternal being. Um, for many Christians, Jesus has always existed. Uh, in some views, he is co-eternal, uh, co-equal with God the Father. Uh, and um, I guess we're here to sort of explore that and sort of see maybe a, a different side to that coin. Um, we, we sort of affirm that Jesus was incredibly special. He was the integral, pinnacle part of God's plan. But we believe that he was a human and uh, his existence started roughly 2000 years ago, not at the beginning of time. So, yeah, I, I suppose that's sort of what we're going to ask. 
um, I'd say it's important that we sort of approach this with an open mind. And yeah, it, it is part of a much wider theological conversation about the nature of God, the nature of Jesus, um, and all that good stuff. So, okay, so let's uh, let's look at uh, uh, perhaps just very briefly as we as we get into this, and we'll start looking at, uh, at some examples of of reasons why people may might choose to believe in pre-existence or not in pre-existence. Um, uh, pre-existence, as you as you mentioned, isn't something that we talk about an awful lot. You might talk about pre-existing conditions. You know, someone who comes to a doctor, they're already uh, got some ailment or something like that. I was trying to think of another example. I couldn't really come up with much other than maybe, you know, I've got a the the image of a sandwich that I'm going to have for lunch in my mind and the ingredients are in my fridge and in a cupboard D does the sandwich sort of pre-exist in my kitchen even though it's not formed together I couldn't really come up with anything better than that that's not really that helpful it's a, it's a tough one so uh, in terms of just thinking about pre-existence what uh, would that um, uh, look like in terms of it just a, I guess a very brief definition what what is it that we're talking about uh, Jesus either pre-existing or not pre-existing yeah it's a tough one isn't it to put your finger on it when as you said there's not a lot of things that pre-exist in our day-to-day -day life um, I, tried, I, think, I tried hard to come up with some and I, <laughs> I really struggled sandwich was as best as I could do yeah I like I like that food is always pre-existing in all of our minds right um, when's the next meal but I think you've touched on a good point there Josh I don't know if you did it purposefully or not but sort of pre-existence in our day-to-day -day lives is normally quite notional it's sort of in our minds it's sort of what do we want to do next what we're going to do today and sort of ideas are there that they haven't yet happened but they're sort of something that we're thinking about something that we want to do um something that we're planning for in the future and i think we'll see the bible sort of uses similar ex expressions when it describes god and his mind as though things are there they're going to happen he knows they're going to happen he's all-knowing he's omniscient uh and sort of that's how pre-existence seems to be described so yeah the actual the sandwich is is actually quite a profound <laughs> Profound analogy. Yeah, maybe I was just hungry. Maybe I've tapped into something. I don't know. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let's uh, let's let's move forward into um, uh, to, to to think about um, maybe what the Bible says about these kind of things. Yeah, I think so. Um, I guess I guess it's important to acknowledge our biases, right? And um, okay. we, we were speaking about this earlier, weren't we? Everyone. When, it, when we come to the Bible, when we come to read it, we unfortunately bring baggage with it, and, and it's natural and it's normal for everyone to do that. Um, sort of, I suppose Trinitarians will accuse us as people that deny the Trinity and affirm sort of the oneness of God that we are reading the text through that worldview, and um, it's it's a bit of a strange one because everyone could be accused of that. You know, you could accuse me of it, I could accuse you of it, and we sort of go around in circles, and no one seems to know who had the first idea and who's approaching it uh, agnostically. So it, it is difficult, but I think it's important that when we read, we let the text speak to us and, and we don't sort of muzzle it or sort of shun it into a corner and, and sort of, yeah, we, we let the word of God speak for itself. And so um, that's sort of what we try and do, uh, as is everyone. Um, the one thing I would say is, to me, the Bible comes to us in what I would call a monotheistic worldview. So another complicated Christian word. Essentially, the Bible comes to us and describes God as the one true father and throughout the scriptures god is always presented as the, the one true father the creator he's the one god um there's sort of no one else like him the jews believe that uh the early christians i believe believed that um and so i wouldn't say it's a bias to read the bible that way it's more of a framework seems to be there is that fair does that make sense sam can i try and summarize what you've said and you can tell me if i've got your point right that everyone comes to any document but particularly something like a religious text like the bible 
with background and bias worldview that will affect the way we read it. Like that's almost like point one. Um, point two is everyone has that. And it's probably just being aware of that that's useful. Um, yeah. So it's not like uh, you're claiming that you don't have a worldview. You're saying you do. You just it's acknowledging it's useful. And then your third point, if I understood it, was that actually there is kind of big frameworks in which you can start to think about the biblical texts and that is that the text particularly i guess of the new testament the greek scriptures are in the framework of the jewish old testament which is written with this very obvious view that god is one yes and therefore that's a background uh, and 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 maybe it's a bias i suppose of the people at the time but that's definitely the context in which the new testament is written so with uh, with that idea that we should try and be uh, um, we should show some humility, some humbleness, being aware that we might be bringing stuff unnecessarily to uh, uh, to these texts if we, we start looking at them, but also to try and let them speak to us. Let's not try and make them say things that they're uh, they're not trying to say, perhaps. With that in mind, let's uh, let's let's make a bit of a, uh, a start. I mentioned, uh, you know, uh, one place we could think about is the birth of Jesus. It's described, you know, a couple uh, different times uh, in in the New Testament. Obviously, the the, the legacy of that. Hey, Christmas Day, we uh, we celebrate that. Maybe it was December twenty fifth, possibly not. But still, um, it was seen to be an important date by uh, by early Christians, and they thought it was worth celebrating. Um, do we get any sort of information, perhaps, to begin thinking about um, Jesus? Did he exist before he was born? When it talks about his birth? Yeah, yeah, we do. Um, so I am right in saying, on that there's two birth narratives in the New Testament. We've got Matthew and Luke. But yeah, in in both of those narratives, um, as far as I can see, we don't give we don't get any indication that Mary was going to give birth to someone that already existed in some other form. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm not trying to misrepresent Trinitarianism here, but Mary's essentially told that in the future, she's going to conceive in her womb and she's going to call that baby Jesus. Um, There's sort of no language of Mary giving birth to something that was already there or somehow coming into her uh, in like an incarnation sort of way. Uh, Incarnation is is the word to describe sort of spirit becoming a human. Um, So at least that's how I read Matthew and Luke. I don't see any of that going on. Um, And I would expect to see it. I think that's the point. I, if, if that was happening, I, I think Mary would either be told that it's happening or Matthew and, and Luke would be a bit more explicit in describing how that's going to work. Um, but as I said, that, that's sort of not there. Um, I know that's quite an obvious point, but I think it's it's worth parking out on. OK. All right. A great place to, to, to start then and say we would perhaps expect to find something kind of uh, uh, noted down either for the reader's benefit or something said you know directly to Mary um, herself there but okay so we don't see perhaps um, specific language about pre-existence uh, at that section um, uh, is there anything else um, in yeah, I, that, that we, we could have a look at there is so interestingly both um, Matthew and Luke they start both of their gospels with a genealogy a long so list you, of complicated names yeah a long long list of Jewish of Jewish names um, and that is the prequel to the birth narratives in, in both accounts Right. Um, so we get this massive lineage of, sort of where Jesus came from, uh, who were his father's fathers, and, and so on and so forth. Now, uh, the, the two accounts differ. Um, Matthew fo- focuses on Jesus coming from the line of David and uh, David's son Solomon, and Luke follows um, David's son Nathan. So they, they differ in sort of the exact specific ancestors that they focus on. But nevertheless, they both trace Jesus as coming from King David, who was a quite an important Old Testament king and someone who God promises uh, something quite explicit to David. So we don't have time to go there, but sort of in the Old Testament, God says to David that you can't build me a house, but one of your descendant will. And the house that your descendant will build you will last forever, will be an eternal kingdom. And he says to David, it's going to come from your own flesh and blood. So it wasn't just some sort of random 
random descendant that was adopted. It was going to be someone that was from the bloodline of David. Um, and so I guess I have questions, and, and this is something that we can explore, around how that works if Jesus already existed. Um, you know, logically speaking, gene- genealogies work when there's a cause and effect relationship between your parents having children and your grandparents having children and you can trace it down sort of reasonably and and mathematically. It seems odd to me that if Jesus already existed, that he can actually be described as the flesh and blood descendant of someone before him. Does does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. So you're saying there's uh, um, the Bible sort of sets up um, in the in the promises to David, and then kind of picks up on the idea of continuity of some sort. That there's a there's a thread sort of working its way from from David through his physical descendants that is going to reach uh, 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 eventually Jesus uh, being born. Um, in the same way that I could you know look at my family tree and sort of trace it back to my great 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 uh, uh, grandfather or or something like that. That there's a a continuity a, a line that could be drawn between the two without any sort of breaks or anything like that, which just describes lots of people having children through the years yeah. uh, as uh, people all around the world have been doing for for some time yeah absolutely okay. and i guess i guess it is a little bit more complicated because you know, and we can talk about this sort of the way mary gave birth wasn't the average way that our um you know how we procreate how genealogies work i mean suddenly there's there's no father and a virgin gives birth and so the concept of a family tree can only be taken so far and, and we sort of acknowledge that um but i guess my point is the promise explicitly made to david is less true when um we sort of have this incarnation of jesus coming into the line that isn't properly his um someone that i read um dr dale tuggy he, he uses quite a really a really quite interesting analogy to sort of explain this. Um, can I just take a quick example, see if you if you follow me on this? Um, he says, um, suppose a Martian comes to your house, right? And this Martian had taken sort of a identical DNA sample of, I don't know, you, John. And uh, the Martian had gone to create sort of a replica of you in, in space. And this good looking John Davis 2.0 comes <laughs> to Watford and is at your front door. Um, you know, he looks like you. He speaks like you. He's got your physical genetic makeup. Would, would that person, that thing, would he be a true Davis? Um, you know, you might... You know, you, you might choose to adopt him and, and like sort of le- legally allow him into your family in that weird way. But this this person that's arrived, he doesn't have the same origins as you. Um, you know, he doesn't share your ancestry. He doesn't share your great grandfather in, in that way. Technically, he does, but in a different way, he doesn't. And so I guess the view of Jesus sort of coming down from heaven and existing in that way just doesn't quite ring true to this part of, of the Bible. Um, obviously, the Bible uh, is written by Jews. Uh, it comes to us inspired, so God guided Jewish men and mi- women to write it. But He presumably allowed these Jewish men and women to sort of bring their own uh, cultural identity into the text. Um, and one of the things that we see in the page of the Bible is that there's a Jewish concept of pre-existence around. Um, it's similar to what we were talking about at the start. How everything exists in God's mind. Uh, before it happens. So obviously God is omniscient, he's all-knowing, as we as we talked about, and they describe God in a way that sort of aligns to that and how he knows everything before it's happening. And so in some ways, uh, everything pre-existed in the mind of 
God. Follow me? So because he knows what's going to happen, it's almost already there in his mind. And when we look at both the biblical text and the extra biblical text, so sort of Jewish writings around the time of Jesus, uh, the time of the New Testament and before Jesus, we see Jews over and over again sort of working within that worldview of pre-existence. Um, I'm not going to go into sort of quoting all of the apocryphal, which are the extra biblical documents where that's recorded, but there are a lot of examples where sort of first rent first century Jews say things were there before the world was created. So they talk about the law being in heaven with God. They talk about the Garden of Eden being in heaven with God. Um, Now, these are concepts that God created in the beginning, but, you know, they pre-existed in the sense that God had a plan and that's how they interpreted it. It was with God in his mind. And so there are certain parts of the Bible that use that language to describe Jesus. And and if you just enter it from a Western point of view, you kind of miss that. You can miss that worldview. And I think that's sort of where we can go wrong with sort of understanding the nature of Jesus. Because I guess, yeah, go ahead, John. I was just going to say, have you got an example from the Bible of that kind of thing happening, Sam? Because I think that might add a bit yeah, of color to that. Yeah, absolutely. So if you go to Ephesians chapter one, and John, maybe you could read um, verse three to five. Sure. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly place, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Thanks, John. So I guess the uh, sort of verse we'll focus in on there is verse uh, verse four. So it describes God as choosing us in Jesus before the foundation of the world. Um, So there's language here whereby that us is Christians. Uh, and the hymn is Jesus. So we are somehow chosen before the world was made. Now, that's not a literal chosen. You know, we didn't exist before the world was created. But in God's mind, we did. And he knew that we were going to uh, follow his son, presumably. And so in some way, we are predestined with we're chosen to for that work i guess okay so uh, if this idea this this worldview that um there are uh, all sorts of uh, different things um you know uh, places you describe the garden of eden you know people um uh, uh, believers who are going to be faithful can in uh, in this sense pre-exist in the mind of god if we're not aware of that when we come to uh, some um other texts that describe jesus uh, either we could be um, missing something that's there either they're, they're trying to say something and we're not going to pick it up or uh, or in addition to, I suppose we might add something in that uh, to try and fill in the gap that uh, a, an understanding of that worldview uh, would help us understand. And yeah. so we, we might be adding things in that aren't supposed to be there that the original readers, the people around who had that worldview, would have understood without having to sort of make the extra step that we do today. So is, is that kind of what you're saying with this, that we, we need to um, be aware with this? Uh, aware of this and uh, and bring it into the equation when we're yeah. uh, when we're trying to understand this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think to be honest, if you were just to read the Bible and you could see the amount of times this language is used, you wouldn't necessarily need to know the Jewish cultural context of it. Sort of lets the Bible speak for itself. I mean, there are so many verses that we could turn to, like Ephesians, that sort of describe this language. But you know, for people who might be skeptical of that, you can also see the same principle in other Jewish writings, which is why uh, you know that that sort of was referenced as a as a piece of evidence to say, okay, this is how Jews see this topic, Jews wrote the scriptures through inspiration, and so the same things might be at play here. 
So I guess the takeaway point is that exact thing. Everything exists in the mind of God. And for finite humans like us, that's a, a weird thing to sort of get your head around. But it helps us approach some of these sort of complicated texts. Okay, great. That's really helpful. Um, are there any other sort of uh, reasons, Sam, um, for a non-literal pre-existence that you want to, uh, to to take us to now? Or should we have a look at some, some verses that uh, uh, historically get raised up um, uh, in, in defence of um, the existence of, uh, uh, of Jesus? Yeah, I, I think, Josh, it sort of makes natural sense to look at those verses because when we look at them, we'll then see sort of other things that are, are at play rather than me just talking sort of conceptually about, okay. um, you know, why I believe what I believe. Essentially, just to sort of set the scene, Mm-hmm. There are probably around seven New Testament texts that imply in some way that Jesus was either divine or somehow existed before. And Okay, um, I think John 1 would be the most famous um, okay. proof text for the pre-existence of Jesus. Yeah, I think that one, yeah, on, on, on Google Autocomplete, I'm sure that one probably comes up first <laughs> if you're looking for, uh, yes. you know, Let's go for, with that. for Let's go with Trinity that. verses, I think. Yeah, and I think... Uh, John 1 actually sort of explains another principle that I think is happening in the Jewish world, and that's around sonification. And I guess we can talk about that as we read it. So, uh, yeah, let's start with John 1, shall we? So, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Life and the life with the light of men. Sorry, uh, the life with the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness is not to overcome it. And then verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. Thanks, John. So I guess it sort of makes sense to sort of explain how I wouldn't interpret this and how someone who opposed my view would interpret it. That's okay. uh, first start. Um, again, hopefully I don't mis- misrepresent that view. But essentially, a, a person who believed in the Trinity or a person that believed that he did pre-exist would read the first five verses and they would see how there's this concept of the Word. And, and it says the Word was with God in the beginning. Uh, the Word uh, was with God and the Word was God. And they'd sort of then jump forward to verse 14 and logically, the same word is used, the word, and it says that word became flesh and dwelt among us. And uh, John goes on to explain that that was Jesus. Okay, So what they would then do is sort of read back, having verse 14 defined that the word is Jesus, sort of then read verse 1 and it may read something like in the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. Okay, Does that make sense? You, you follow the sort of that I understand, understand the view, yeah. 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 So, and, it, and, and I guess that I like um, speaking very fairly, you could kind of see how people would get there because it says in verse 1 in the beginning was the word and then later on it kind of explains the word becomes flesh and that's Jesus. So yeah. then you're just reading Jesus back into verse 1. Yeah, and it's all within the same chapter, it's all within the same context. Yeah, it's not a different thing. Yeah, yeah we're not jumping around. We're not jumping around. It's the same Greek word logos. Um, you know, I, I completely get how that is a, as a common interpretation of John chapter one. And as we just acknowledged, you know, we stand uh, in a minority against this view uh, and, and we don't do it lightly. But um, sort of my response would be a couple of things. So first of all, the word doesn't become flesh until verse 14. So however much it is in the same chapter, in the same context, I don't think that automatically allows us to read back to say, okay, that means the word throughout history has been Jesus. Um, you know, it doesn't quite um, naturally work that way to me. Um, now, the challenge is defining that word is, is tricky. Um, it's the Greek word logos, and it seems to be pulling on quite a few 
different ideas. Um, but the, the, probably the easiest way to define it, and it's not my definition, um, there's a lot of scholars and linguists who have put a lot of work into trying to work out what the word logos meant in Greek. Um, and there's an American linguist called uh, Marion Hiller, and she defines logos along with most other linguists as the term in the universe that brings order and wisdom. So many people would interpret the Logos as being God's spoken word, raw order that was wise. Um, and if you know anything about Genesis, you'll know that's exactly how Genesis 1 and 2 narrative works. You know, God speaks and he turns chaos into order. Uh, and you know, that, that was the way that it worked. So what I would say is that seems to be um, in the first five verses, how to interpret um, this, this concept of, of uh, Logos. It's, it's saying that in the beginning, God had wisdom, he had a plan, he had a purpose, and that purpose was with God, and that purpose was God. You know, God's word is his wisdom, his plan, and uh, it was with him. He, he had that from the very beginning. I would then read verse 14 to say that wisdom, that plan, that purpose of God became flesh in Jesus. You know, Jesus perfectly sort of, uh, replicated who God was, his word, um, his character, his plan. Um, and, you know, that, that happens in verse 14 and not not before that, um, if, if you follow me. So that's sort of my basic interpretation. And I think I think what John is doing, which we haven't talked about, is using this idea of personification. Um, and we could go back into the book of Proverbs and sort of a lot of other Jewish wisdom literature on this, sort of describe how Jews would use personification. So just as a quick summary, in Proverbs, we have this idea of, um, sort of uh, wisdom being personified as a woman. Okay? So throughout Proverbs, Solomon describes wisdom as a she. Right at the end of Proverbs, in, in Proverbs 31, we get this idea of this she, this lady wisdom, becoming a person. And he describes in chapter 31 this ideal woman who sort of is wise. She does wise things. She teaches kindly. She, she raises up her children in like a God-orientated uh, way. And you might say that wisdom became flesh. Okay? This idea of um, what it means to be wise was seen in this woman. Myself and other scholars who sort of take the Unitarian view see John doing the same thing. He's describing the wisdom of God and saying, look, that's who God is. That's his plan. That's what he stood for. And that was personified in the life of Jesus. It's not It's not saying that that was a literal person. It's sort of, a, I guess, a, a linguistic sort of way of um, using poetry. Does that make sense? Sorry, I th- sort of threw a lot at you there, but... Um... Yeah, I think, I, think that's, I think that's interesting. So um, the two kind of alternative positions are one view suggests that the word is Jesus, Jesus existed at the start, and then he, he was there when in the time of he was kind of born to Mary. And your suggestion, Sam, is that the word here is about God's spoken word, his purpose, his mind, that it was there in the beginning, just like wisdom was in Proverbs, and then it becomes uh, flesh in in, the, in in Jesus. Yeah. And that's the two different views on, on that approach. Um, we, I guess one question I would have um, is at the end of verse one of John 1, it talks about the word was God. Yeah. How do you and, and I guess we could probably talk about John 1 for about 17 hours. So perhaps there's one question on that one. I guess, how does your interpretation fit with that bit? That makes sense. It does the question. Yeah, it does. Um, yeah. But interestingly, just before I sort of interpret how I would describe that, the same question could be asked of uh, someone of a Trinitarian. So sort of within Orthodox views of the Trinity, they don't say that Jesus is the Father. Uh, you know, God is made up of three and the three parts make the one God. And so... Um, this idea of the Logos being Jesus, equaling God is not explicitly true in Trinitarian formula either. So sort of, I get why you asked that, but it, it's probably not that straightforward uh, of, a, of a conclusive 
reason either way. But I would interpret that, John, as what God says is what is who he is. Um, and there's plenty of examples in the Old Testament where sort of God's name and his word are used interchangeably. Like God can't lie. What he says is is who he is, if that makes sense. They're sort of one and the same concept. So his word, his ideas, things that are in his mind just are him. Uh, you can't say that God is one thing and his word is something different. Unlike us who say one thing and do another, That that isn't how God is described in the Bible. Can I just ask uh, another question? Again, I appreciate we could go on for this for a very long time, but the beginning that we looked at the beginning of John's gospel, and we talked about you know the beginning of of Matthew and Luke, which start with this genealogy of Jesus and talk about his birth and his mother and him being a baby and growing up, and there's all this sort of you know, human narrative type stuff that uh, is pretty understandable. Um, the the other gospel, Mark, sort of does away with that and just it just sort of introduces Jesus. He's already talking and doing things, and it's really exciting, and uh, and off we go. Why do you think John begins his gospel this way, which is very, very different to the other three, which are all interested at the very beginning about Jesus's life, uh, who's around him at the time and where he's going and what he's doing. We kind of get into the into the life of, of, of Jesus pretty quick. Um, whereas here we have this beginning of John is very, very different. Is there a, a reason that um, he one begins in this way and feels that this information is uh, is important to get across to the reader before we actually you know hear Jesus speaking or see him performing miracles or or teaching things, which is what we eventually will get onto. But it's quite a different beginning. Yeah, very good question. Um, you know, I'm not sure if I have all the answers to that, but I think to, to agree with you, Josh, um, this isn't the only verse in John that throws up questions about the pre-existence of Jesus. Um, if you know anything about John, he's different from the other three in quite a lot of ways. And uh, you know, we have sayings of Jesus in John such as before Abraham was, I am, uh, that no other of the, the synoptic gospels record. Um, so, so John is definitely different and he's doing something different to the other gospels in sort of every single possible way. Um, I've always seen John as sort of very theologically motivated in not just recording literally what happened, although he does that, but sort of telling it in a way which ties Jesus to the rest of God's plan and scripture in quite a creative way. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, at the end of John's gospel, uh, if you go to um, John chapter 20, yeah, John 20, verse 30 and 31, if you could just read those. Yeah, sure. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Thanks, John. So as uh, the ESV puts it there in that subtitle, this is John describing the purpose of his gospel. And the reason, the one reason he gives for writing what he did was that the readers might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, which in itself is, uh, you know, sort of a, a reason to accept the Unitarian view of the world in the sense that John says he's the Son of God. That's how the disciples describe Jesus. But it's more than just the Son of God. It's the Christ. It's the Messiah. You know, Jesus isn't just, um, isn't just the Son of God. He's been granted sort of divine sovereignty. He's been given the authority of God to forgive sins. He is the chosen Messiah. This isn't just an arbitrary savior that God has sort of given to Israel in the past. This is the one. This is this is the savior of the world. And I think John starts his gospel the way he does to really hone in on this. You know, he's the word made flesh. He's everything that God stood for in wisdom and, and purpose and character. And he wants the readers to understand that at the beginning and throughout. Um, I don't know if that answers the question, but sort of that's what I think he's doing. 
No, absolutely. And I, I think, yeah, that's a, a great verse because it's sort of John at the end saying, well, you know, after you've read this, if I gave you a test, who would you say Jesus is? And he's expecting it would appear the answer to be, well, Jesus is, is the Messiah. He is the Christ and he's the son of God. And uh, and that's why I've been uh, I've been telling you these things. So if perhaps, uh, yeah, as you're implying, if we're adding it up and we're getting something different, then we might not have understood what John was trying to, uh, to convey to us. Yeah. And, and actually, Jesus asks that question to the disciples. He says, who do you say that I am? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know that verse. And Simon Peter says, "You are the Son of God, the Christ." You know, sort of their vision, their view of Jesus was that as well. Um, and so, although I, you know, to John's question earlier, you know, we stand as a minority here, sort of stand in the face of a lot of tradition and yeah. sort of orthodoxy. I take that for what it is, and I think that we stand sort of with the disciples in that in that way. And I know it's more complicated than that, but that's sort of how I read um, these early early parts of um, the gospel. That's that's really helpful. Thank you. Uh, I'm conscious where we've uh, got to, and I'm, I'm desperate to just uh, uh, address the, uh, the the bracketed part of our title tonight uh, uh, before we close. We've talked about reasons for, reasons against, but um, Sam, could you just sort of paint a bit of a picture for us what it is we stand to gain, what it is we stand to lose if we misunderstand who Jesus is. And if he didn't pre-exist, we think he did, or if he didn't, and we think he did, or whichever configuration it is, what, what's at stake here? Sort of draw a line under it. What, what are we in danger of missing out on yeah. or inserting that shouldn't be there and that's going to prevent us from, from, from doing something or understanding something in the right way? What's, uh, what, what, what's at stake here? Ooh, good question. Um, okay, I'll, I'll give two reasons and then okay. feel free to uh, sort of dispute them, plug them, see if I'm on the right sort of lines. But the first thing I'd say isn't to do with theology, not to do with sort of doctrinal implica- implications of believing in a pre-existent Jesus. It's exactly what we've just been describing, and that is, who do you say that Jesus is? You know, to me, one of the most basic questions you could ask a Christian is, who is God and who is Jesus? And there are many things that I don't understand about God. You know, I don't know where he literally is. I don't know what he looks like. I can't really comprehend his etern- his eternal nature. I can't comprehend his love and his mercy. But for me, one of the reasons that God sent Jesus in the first place was to reveal who God was in his character, in his purpose. And it seems odd to me that if Jesus is pre-existent, if he is somehow God and part of God, and that's a great mystery that, you know, even Trinitarians will, will admit they, they can't explain um, sort of the mystery behind that tri-relationship. It just doesn't, I know it's, I know it's a bit of a, sort of a whimsical argument, but it doesn't seem right to me that God's purpose in revealing himself through his son is then quite complicated and more complicated because somehow Jesus is half man, half, um, half God, you know, and, and that doesn't, doesn't allow me to explain who he is quite easily. Um, and as I said, I know that's not groundbreakingly conclusive either way. It's just my own view. Um, and Trinitarians might think that I've overcomplicated Jesus' nature. So that, that's sort of a reason from emotion. Um, in terms of why does it matter theologically, um, I believe, as Paul describes in the New Testament, that the resurrection is the heart of the Christian faith. Um, he says in numerous places that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then our, our sins aren't forgiven. We don't have a hope of resurrection ourselves. And I'm concerned that if we conclude that Jesus is God or yeah, this is 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, if you read uh, verse 15 and 16, I guess, John, or 14 as well, probably. If, uh, if Christ has not been risen, raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. 
exactly. So that, that's the sort of what's at stake here, I believe, if we misunderstand pre-existence. And let me explain how that works. So the best way I can do it is pictorially. So this is, um, this is a, a sort of a, a really uh, crude drawing that I did earlier. And um, this diagram presupposes the Trinitarian view of Jesus. So on the left-hand side, we have Jesus's divinity. So how much is he like God and what is his status with God? And so as we've said, sort of people that believe in pre-existence would affirm that Jesus is at a level with God at the highest point that one could be. On the bottom side of the, of the graph, we have time. So in the beginning, Jesus was with God, according to Trinitarians, he's always been with God, part of the, the, the triune Godhead. He then, when he came to earth, takes the human form. Um, they would call that incarnation. Uh, Mary gives birth to something that already was in heaven. Now, the logical sort of deduction from that is that Jesus's human existence was in some way diminished. Okay, it was less than what he had in heaven. You know, in heaven he was an all-powerful God. He was immortal. You know, he helped God create the world. Uh, and now he's a man, and he's sort of given up that authority, that divinity, that status, and he's a human. Okay, so here he is, human on earth, lives till he. He's 33, and then he sort of gets even lower in that he, he dies. Okay, so my first objection around a pre-existent Jesus is how does a pre-existent eternal Jesus die? What what does that look like? You know, we, we know what death is. Death is when our vital organs cease to exist. We know nothing. We are nothing. We're gone. How does that fit within the sort of two natures view of Jesus? Did, did half of Jesus die, the, the man half and the eternal logos carried on living? If so, that's not a real death. Uh, and as I said, if Jesus didn't die, then sort of our sins aren't forgiven. So it, is important that we sort of get that right. I've got questions around that, and and I'm sure sort of Trinitarians have some reasonable explanations around the death side. But then my my major objection is around the exaltation at the other side of uh, his death. So the Bible is quite clear that because he humbled himself, God raised him from the dead. God gave Jesus a name that he didn't have before. He exalted him, and he's raised. Now to, to sort of draw this out again. If Jesus was already up here, he's come down here, and now he's been raised from the dead, exalted to God's right hand. To me, that's not really an exaltation. It's not really a resurrection. It's a restoration of where you were before. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but that's does, not yeah. that's not to, that's not how the Bible, in my interpretation, describes his resurrection, and it, and it's not how it describes his exaltation. So I think concept of resurrection and forgiveness of sin sort of is undermined in a pre-existent Jesus. And, you know, the way Jesus defeated sin is he was tempted in every way that I was. He was a human. He overcame that. And that's why God raised him from the dead. That's why he was given what he was given. Um, and so that's what I think is at stake. Um, I don't know if you want me to dive in in any more detail on that, Josh. But um... uh, No, I think that that's really helpful. It's, uh, yeah, the, the, the two parts that you talked about, there's the, the who part. It, is it, we are, are we understanding Jesus uh, correctly uh, uh, in his relationship with uh, with God, um, and then also the, the the what he did part. Um, if uh, it, you know, it is the uh, uh, is the re are we understanding the resurrection correctly and what uh, and what that is doing and whether Jesus pre-existed or he didn't pre-exist does affect um, the uh, the meaning, perhaps the application, the the the, the power and the direction and the exhortation from uh, from the resurrection. So I, I think that's really helpful. Um, uh, uh, John, does that make uh, make sense to you uh, uh, as well? Yeah, I think I think there's some things in there that were new to me as well, Sam. To be fair, that exhortation point I'd not. And I guess the only thing I was going to say before we kind of wrap was. Um, I guess we've talked in quite a bit of detail tonight and, we, and if some of it's gone a bit like oh that was a bit deep and very involved do I have to know all of that I guess Sam would it be what could, could you 
summarize really simply kind of your understanding of Jesus in like a couple of sentences about what you need to know to follow Jesus um, as a sort of summary piece if someone's gone wow that was pretty intense yeah absolutely um, and, and apologies about that we sort of have really lifted the lid on one of the more complicated aspects of Christian debate um, we've sort of honed in on seven of the most complicated and debated texts uh, that you could find in the New Testament yeah so sort of stepping like down from that and, and sort of considering who Jesus is um, as I said this this, this topic is part of um, a very nuanced debate within Christians, but you don't need to know how to sort of interpret John 1 in the, in the, in the minutiae or Philippians 2 or Colossians 1. That, they're things that I've been getting my teeth into sort of because it interests me and I didn't have a logical explanation for some of those texts and I, and I wanted to get to the bottom of what was going on. Um, and I think that's true throughout the whole Bible. That's that's a part of the journey of discipleship, right? We always wrestle with different parts that we're not sure on and no one has all the answers. But I guess back to the very basic, um, to me, the early Christians, the disciples, the early church believed in the the exaltation of Jesus, but they believed in the human nature that Jesus, um, Jesus had. He's someone that I can relate to because he was like me. And um, I think the, the more divinity... And the more godlike you you put uh, you put onto Christ, the harder it is to understand. And um, to me, Jesus is the, is the Son of God. He's the central part of God's plan. He's what makes everything possible as a Christian. But he was like he was like me, and uh, and that's what inspires me. That's what gives me hope that he conquered you know temptations. He conquered sin. He overcame so that I have a chance to do the same. Um, and that's sort of to me the the bedrock of of Christian hope. That's wonderful. That's a, a powerful and I think a, a a really excellent place uh, to to finish the the bedrock of of Christian hope uh, is uh, is centered in Jesus and knowing Him and and understanding Him. Thank you very much, uh, Sam, for all the, uh, the the things you've prepared, the things you've uh, presented and explained to us. Uh, it's been uh, it's been lovely to have you uh, you with us. Um, uh, thank you very much, also, John, um, for, uh, for for your for your questions, for, for for keeping Sam honest and keeping us on track as well. It's uh, it's been great to have uh, have this time with uh, with the two of you and also with everyone out there. Thank you so much for uh, for for joining us. listening to the bible feed podcast thanks for joining us we're always keen to hear what you think hear your questions or subjects you'd like to discuss so get in touch with us on our facebook page or send a message from our webpage at biblefeed.org and be part of the journey